Hello, and welcome to the Science Behind Science podcast. My name is Anne Tushar. And I'm Dennis Grenzowitz. Here, we'll take you backstage of research to introduce you to the people behind science and how scientific discoveries really happen. This is our second conversation with Dr. Stetson Thacker. As previously discussed, Stetson recently earned his doctoral degree from Cleveland Clinic's molecular medicine program before joining Genome Oncology as their clinical genomics curator. In addition to this position at Go, Stetson is the social media manager for the journal Human Molecular Genetics, which we chat about today. Stetson's position as a clinical genomics curator and social media manager puts him at an interface between clinical and basic research, allowing him to communicate widely with both scientists and health professionals alike. The roles he plays, as well as his continuous engagement with the scientific community on a variety of platforms, is something we wanted to tap into in our discussion with him. In this episode, you'll be introduced to the variety of ways in which scientists communicate. From preprint to Twitter to Substack, Stetson gives us an overview of the specific uses and unique aspects of each. He'll also provide his thoughts on where SciComm may be headed in the years to come. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Stetson Thacker. So Stetson, you have two different jobs, so to speak, or two different roles currently. You are both a social media manager for a major scientific journal, and you are also considered a scientific curator. Can you kind of explain what those roles are and, and just give a description for us? For sure. So I work for a software startup company called Genome Oncology, which is a portmanteau essentially for with genome and oncology, which gets to the root of uh, what we do. It's a precision oncology software company that you know, delivers tools to those ends. Basically, our products provide decision support for physicians in oncology and essentially recommendations for which trials patients should be matched to and which therapies they should be matched to based on their unique molecular profiles, which are, of course, established by various medical tests in the cancer genetics arena. Oftentimes, those are tests that leverage next-generation sequencing technologies. Some of the famous tests in that arena are like foundation medicines test, different tumoral panels and such like that. So what I do is I work on the content end of the company and basically managing our, our knowledge base in various forms. I help build our drug ontology. So the therapies that we recommend for cancer patients, we have to have an ontology, which is basically like a hierarchical relationship between all the drugs that we have. And that's what I do there. I mean, there's lots of things that go into that, but that's kind of the, the high level description. And then for a journal that I work for, Human Molecular Genetics, I manage the, the Twitter feed essentially. And it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an important thing in terms of really promoting the work that is being published in the journal. And it just so happens for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, but Twitter is oftentimes, it seems the preferred platform for scientists to communicate about their research. And you can find some really detailed threads on Twitter that des describe their work. In some ways, I would say some Twitter threads are superior to the abstracts of the paper in terms of both describing the work, because a lot of times, you know, they can insert a figure yeah, and they can talk about, you know, why it's important. So it's essentially you're getting it a lot of times from the first author or from the senior author, and they're really walking you through their paper on Twitter. And that can be, you know, really illuminating. 
being a social media manager for a journal, we want to do those things for the articles that are being published in the journal and making sure they're, they're getting engagement and that we're growing our following and growing the amount of eyeballs that are on that research. Cause you know, we think the research that we publish is important. Of course, schedule out our content and make sure we cover all of our issue releases, all of the individual articles that make each issue. We also try to explore collaborations between sister journals, of course, because HMG sits under the Oxford Publishing uh, House. Uh, so there's tons of journals, some that you may be familiar with, like Nucleic Acid Research is also you know, in the Oxford group. And thinking about leveraging some of Twitter's new tools. Recently, Twitter rolled out a function they call Spaces, which I'm not sure if you've heard of, but it's kind of like Clubhouse, but on Twitter. Are you guys familiar with Clubhouse? Enlighten us. I'm familiar with Clubhouse, but enlighten us about Spaces. Yeah, so Spaces functions like Clubhouse. It's basically like live audio room. So a live audio discussion platform, basically within Twitter. A few people are like moderators of a room and they talk, but it enables like a, a Q&A function. You know, like AMAs were popular like on Reddit. Hmm. Yeah, no, that seems really interesting that Twitter's doing that. I was not familiar with Spaces at all, but that seems like it would be a really cool thing for Science Twitter to get engaged with. How did you find yourself wanting to take on this role in genome oncology? I mean, obviously jobs are jobs, right? But what do you think the higher level function of that position is outside of just being a scientist? And in the industry space, how do you fit in with the broader goals of just research in general in the cancer field? One of the big challenges in genomics generally is interpretation of data and the space where it's most mature is in oncology, essentially. We can do a lot of somatic genetic testing on tumors. We can not just turn out tons and tons and tons of sequence data, high quality sequence data, but leverage that sequence data, understand that sequence data in order to change actual clinical management of cancers. There's a lot of really great examples of success of this use. Say, for instance, like the findings of targeting ALK overexpression in non-small cell lung cancer with small molecules that are tyrosine kinase inhibitors like crizotinib. You know, a subset of non-small cell lung cancer patients will have this alteration, and that means that they're eligible for this treatment, and these treatments are particularly effective as well. A lot of times, because they're more precise, because they're targeting a specific molecular alteration, they end up having less side effects and sometimes just greater efficacy. So that's the that's the sort of idea behind using next generation sequencing technologies to really understand the precise molecular profile of a tumor so that you can really have very precise molecular treatments. Genome oncology is really trying to be at the forefront of helping with interpretation of all this data, right? So even though this space is mature, matured a bit, it's still very much the Wild West. And, you know... <laughs> We're learning new things. The research is evolving. We don't have it all figured out, but also the tools are evolving. And there's just so much data in general. And there's so many challenges that clinicians face on a day-to-day -day basis. So we're really trying to streamline the extra mental work that pathologists and oncologists have to do on a day-to-day -day basis so that they can focus on improving patient care and that they don't have to worry about doing work that they don't have to be doing. They can take our tools, provide them with the right answers so that they can make the best clinical decisions. And it cuts down on the amount of interpretation or thinking about these questions, which are very important questions, but are work that basically can be offloaded on our software and then on the front end that curators can take care of as well. 
yeah, again, the point is there's so much information and so much research that goes on. How do we make sure we are staying on top of what's going on, what's happening, as well as delivering that information and the essential information, the important information to the stakeholders that are involved. And there's so many different aspects of industry and academia that are involved in this question. And there's so much to do. In fact, there was a recent publication actually that was discussing how the sheer volume of research that is being done is actually not contributing to tangible, real development. There's a lot of toiling, there's a lot of production of information, but it's not necessarily leading to real, tangible, practical, and productive changes, both on the care side, but also just terms of on the pure science side of are we actually moving fields forward? So it's a really important question. I still think the outside of the actual literature itself, though, the most important way that most of this communication is done is full-length books. You know, <laughs> these serious works that are really transdisciplinary or theoretical or you know, actually presenting novel research, presenting research on, on so many topics or so many questions that it wouldn't fit within one research paper. So it deserves a full book-length study. And a lot of these works, I think, you know, they're really important. Unfortunately, they're not necessarily all read or some of them are a little bit more on the popular side. So maybe they simplify things or skip over some things or omit some things. But I think that's really where it's at. And there's just some accessibility uh, there too. But I think they, they're the ones that do the real moving and shaking, but they're not necessarily at the bleeding edge per se. They may end up pushing that edge or leading to innovation somewhere down the road, but it's sort of a, a punctuated process versus the stuff that keeps you up to on the day-to-day -day stuff. The way to, to do that is spaces like Twitter, podcasts, of course. I think those are great for rapid delivery of the latest findings. If you really want to know, really want to stay up to date. And a lot of times there's so much content out there that you can find really specific stuff like if you're interested in oncology, because that's what we've been talking about, there's podcasts from the Journal of Clinical Oncology. So they'll have like a particular article of the week or a particular interview from an author or someone on their editorial board or some other expert in, in the field that they interview and they talk about the latest research that's going on. And they're accessible conversations, you know, even to non-experts. I mean, some of the time, some of the times not, it really can depend on the questions being asked and the guest and so on. But you can find pretty much anything you want out there and it, it probably exists. <laughs> Definitely. There's so much. And actually, I think that's what we want to delve into now is those different types of communication and stratify those a little bit because you mentioned books, you talked about Twitter, you mentioned a little bit about podcasts, which we do. Can we delve into a few of the different forms of scientific communication, talking about when you use them, what they're good for, mm -hmm. um, how you should use them? unique aspects, things like that. And we can just run through a list here of some things that come to mind for us. We could start with Twitter and social media since we've already hopped in there. But do you want to just take us through what's unique and what that particular platform is really good for? Yes. Twitter, it's great for little bite-sized, sometimes a little bit longer, but pretty short, maybe abstract length discussions of papers. And the tough part is filtering your Twitter feed so that you get the right content and making sure you do that is probably if you can find, you know, the top experts in your field, if they have accounts or if their graduate students or postdocs have accounts, um, you <laughs> yeah. can follow them. That's true. 
and you know you can get an idea of the work that they're doing you know if they've recently published a big paper the typically the first author of that paper will you know have a twitter thread that will give you a really great breakdown of that paper. So that's one way to go about it. Also, another strategy is following particular journals that you like on Twitter. Sometimes journals have great Twitter content as well, or at least they're tweeting articles that you may find interesting. So a lot of times they'll be tweeting out what's in their pages. So if you know that a particular journal, say your genetics and Nature Genetics has a Twitter account. Nature Genetics, they tweet papers that are likely relevant to your area of expertise or tweet papers that are likely interesting to you in one way, shape, or form. So oftentimes just following those accounts will just end up putting papers in front of your face that are likely interesting to you just based on the Twitter algorithm. You know, Also, I guess how you're interacting with that content as well will start prompting, pushing things into your feed that are likely to, to be relevant to your interests. Yeah, so if I was going to make a scientific Twitter tomorrow, uh, I don't know, Dennis Grenswitz, science guy, I would follow all of the big time people in cancer genetics and, I don't know, cancer microbiome, and I would follow, I don't know, Cancer Cell and all the other journals that have their Twitters. Yes. How would I be interfacing? Am I checking once a day? Like when you're scrolling your own science Twitter, are you looking at it once a week? Are you engaging? Are you tweeting back? Are you getting in Twitter wars with people? Like, ah, oh, that data point is garbage. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, of course, I think it's, you know, on the, on the individual, I think most people are just lurking around, seeing what's <laughs> yeah. out there, not Pretty particularly, usual. not necessarily engaging or necessarily sharing all your thoughts. And, and that's not necessarily always a wise thing to just uh, share every thought that ever crosses your mind. <laughs> so always, I guess, think, think twice before you necessarily tweet something. I think that's a good takeaway point. Think twice outside. before you tweet. Yeah, yes. outside of science, but generally. Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. And also, I think it's good to recognize that Twitter is not necessarily the best venue for exchange. So if you do want to communicate with a first author, senior author on a paper, it's probably best to resort to email, even if you come across that content or come across their statement on Twitter itself. I think Twitter's best for like an explore exploration sort of tool, not necessarily discussion. Although sometimes... On certain issues, maybe some of the like the bigger issues, not necessarily on a given individual paper, you know, sometimes it can be interesting to engage. And a lot of times you can get people who, you know, seem like they're pretty big names or pretty big people to, to interact with you too. So that can always be interesting, exciting when you feel like you can basically touch the experts through this mechanism. Twitter, the good thing too, is that you don't have to like build like a whole new Twitter account for this stuff. You can build lists of accounts on Twitter so you can follow a particular list. So basically it has some curation options. Twitter also offers you to follow certain topics. You can basically, when you're setting up an account, you can follow certain topics. It'll help Twitter send you the things that you're likely to be interested in. It's a great tool in that regard. That sounds like it's good for exploring. It's good for getting the gist of new papers that have come out and yes. for potentially connecting you to other people in the field at the time. Mm -hmm. Although you said the limitation is with reaching out to them, sometimes Twitter actually doesn't work very well, right? It had something you have to actually go through email to do sometimes. Yeah, I think you have to always keep in your mind that whatever you say, it's likely to be interpreted or misinterpreted <laughs> more like or interpreted in its worst light or maybe in a more aggressive light. You have to be very careful with how you communicate on Twitter. I think it's a good idea just so you avoid things devolving. And I mean, it's true in email as well. Be the lurker. Yeah. The lurker. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's even true when you reach out via email that you want to, you know, you want to make sure you're not like accusing someone or attacking someone. There's egos involved. And I wouldn't say like science Twitter is particularly above it or, you know, even necessarily better than any other space on Twitter. You know, people can be people sure. and science can be a very high prestige, very demanding, achievement oriented field, even if it's good natured, good faith like critique or question can be interpreted, you know, as an attack sometimes. And it's good to, good to understand that. You know, that's really good insight to move to another form of communication that I think is growing. It seems like this exists. I don't want to say it's at the fringes, but it's just a minority of individuals using it currently would be Substack or Mm -hmm. alternatively like blogs. I think that this functions, (laughs) this functions as like a little bit longer form and slightly more official than Twitter. (laughs) Could you, it depends on who you're talking to, but uh, could you explain Substack, whether or not you think it's going to grow a little bit, like what you use it for and then how it's used by major scientists or big writers and things like that? For sure. So Substack uh, is basically a newsletter delivery service for those who aren't familiar with it. It's essentially like the blog 2.0 form of things. And blogging was like a huge thing in the early internet days. There was a lot of great bloggers who have now gone on to basically have institutional positions in journalism or became big names and got book deals or you know sometimes they're you know now op-ed writers on the new york times board and you know some extremely big time people blogging now is not so much a thing it really kind of occurs on substack you know it lost its luster but substack's kind of bringing it back but the interesting part about substack is it's a subscription model so a lot of the content um, is not necessarily accessible so it's not not as free and open as like the early internet days per se. So there's a lot of, a lot more paywalls. You have to really decide before you invest. Otherwise you'll be having like dozens and dozens or hundreds of subscriptions of Substack, And then now your bank account is zero. So, yep. <laughs> so you have to choose wisely. Have you found any way around that personally? No, there's not really any ways around it. It's just that uh, there's still a lot of the big accounts on Substack or a lot of the the big names, a lot of the like most involved content producers, a lot of their content is not behind the paywall too. They just, they produce so much work. They're prof- this is their professional job. This is their one thing. They, this is their main focus and they're really great at what they do. And they just produce a lot. So you may get like 25%, 50% of their content, but you're still getting a lot of, a, a lot of information from them. And some sub stacks are entirely free. They're just the subscription option is just like available as a donation essentially for their time and their work. There's, you know, a lot of really great science substacks are not necessarily focused on like a particular area of research. They serve more of like a science journalistic function than like actually doing, they're not necessarily really in the minutia or like in doing active scholarship per se. There's still some pretty heady stuff that you can find. Some of the big names you probably recognize, like uh, Eric Topol has a substack who's as a scientist is the most cited scientist, I think in ever or something. He's like, you know, number one in terms of his H index, I think don't necessarily quote me, but it's up there for sure. And then there's people who've been working in science journalism for a long time, or been working in the blogging space for a long time. And it just are really interesting, have really interesting thoughts and are really great at touching on a lot of different scientific concepts. Some of them are basically pseudonymous too. So like Slate Star Codex is a very famous blog that is now Substack run by 
a pseudonym, Scott Alexander, I believe. And, you know, he writes a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, he did recently, like a whole breakdown on the, the actual state of the literature on ivermectin and COVID-19 use, which is a oh, HABA, HABA initiative. And he describes like all the different studies, he walks through like the quality of the studies and all of the information, you know, he obviously puts his own prediction. So he put, you know, his prediction of whether ivermectin has any efficacy against COVID-19, it was like down at 1%, right? Based on the spirit <laughs> of research, right? You get a lot of interesting ideas. Also, another account I follow on Substack that's science related is a guy named Razib Khan, who has been working in science journalism for quite a while. He ran a blog called Gene Expression, and his main focus is paleogenomics, like ancient DNA and using genomics to trace the migrations of our ancient human beings, essentially, or like using genomics to investigate social phenomena like caste in India. He's, he's a, has a man of uh, South Asian descent. So there's, there's just a lot of really interesting stuff there. And a lot of times Substack will pair not only the newsletter delivery, basically blog format content with uh, podcast content as well. I, I think I'm pretty excited about Substack's growth potential. And uh, you know, I, I think it's evolving as the, it already is essentially a new model of information delivery. And uh, I would say it just needs to reckon with the issue of basically fragmentation. The fact that there are so many different interesting accounts, they're not bundled in any way, or you can't access them all, you know, a little $5 here, $5 there, banging over and over again, that it feels a little bit like the streaming wars, you know, where like, you're not going to pay 20 bucks for Netflix, 20 bucks for, or 15 bucks for Amazon Prime, 15 bucks for HBO, you know what I'm saying? So it is. The subscription model, like, unless you are really set on this one thing, you can't necessarily get a broad survey of things. It's not necessarily as useful for that. It's interesting we talk about science blogging because when I think of a blog, I think about a lady saying, like, let me teach you how to make these muffins. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that's what I think of when I think of blogging. I think of it more as a place for opinion. Uh But it sounds like in science blogging, it's a mix of here's what's going on, like giving you an overview of what's happening, and then also throwing ideas and opinions out there? Is that how it's structured? What is typical in this sort of thing? Yes, I would say it's essentially in the mode of long-form journalism, which if someone isn't familiar with that, it's basically longer pieces, way longer than 250 to 500 words, a lot of news articles you may find on the internet or something. And it's definitely not, it's like the anti-clickbaity type thing. These are people who who run the top accounts on Substack are wanting to do serious, longer pieces that present interesting ideas, are serious about ideas. A lot of the times there may be figures that are built into the text, sometimes unique analyses that were done. So it's sometimes database or data-driven, data analytic journalism that 538 got popular for. 538 was a blog back in the day too from Nate Silver. There's that kind of thing that can be found there. But you know, it's also important to remember that it is of course serious about these things, but it's still at the end of the day, an opinion-based thing. You always have to, with any source, think critically and skeptically about what's being presented to you. <laughs> there's, there's of course contemporarily all this concern about misinformation, disinformation, and people misinterpreting things or not having essentially rigorous epistemologies, which is basically like how you know what you know. But what I think is, you know, we should all become sophisticated, mature consumers of content and be able to apply rigorous epistemologies to figure out what is likely to be true, what is likely to be false, and understand what are valued sources of information, what are not valued sources of information, how do we assess that, how can we fact check these things. 
it's always of course important to keep in mind. So it is, it is kind of in, it's an unregulated space, which is both a pro and a con. But I think as people attach to science or actually scientists, I think they are able to think skeptically enough, think rationally enough, do the fact checking for themselves enough so that they can consume sometimes information that may be wrong about things or may be speculating and may also be openly admitting that it's speculation and consume the information and actually derive value from it, even if something may be wrong or, or that it's just an opinion, right? There may not be an established truth that may be just someone's ideas about something. And, and there may be value in consuming that content. It really depends. No, definitely. I think that what you're touching on is that we all kind of have to become champions of assessing the validity of a source. Yes. But that was a really good explanation of Substack. So thank you. We wanted to touch on another form of communication that's growing a little bit broader now, and that's the idea of scientific preprint. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that preprint came into the public eye more with COVID research, yes. and you could fight me on that one or not. No, it's definitely true. I think that I've seen more COVID bioarchive papers that are getting referenced by like mainstream media, and I'm like, whoa, wait, hold on. You can't do that. What the heck? <laughs> And it's kind of rewriting the ideas of what counts as a publication, what is science, what do we consider the value of peer review and everything else. Mm -hmm. So would you be able to, from your perspective, give a little bit of a background on preprint, how it differs from a publication, and then maybe what some of the values or purposes of preprint are? Yes, of course. Preprints, preprint servers, it's essentially a way of delivering scientific research rapidly to a scientific audience. That's likely actively doing scientific research, but of course is also available to any audience, any out there, any audience out there. And the idea is that scientists who've decided that they've reached a completion point, or at least a point where they need to update their audience or their peers, their colleagues about their research, they put together an article in the traditional form of any scientific article, essentially, and post it to a preprint server prior to peer review. There's no peer review that's been done on this work. It's just the internal review that's done by scientists who put together their publication. So it's not like rough drafts. It's high quality scientific research papers that are being put out there. And partially people's wanting to guard their reputation is what makes sure that high quality stuff is put on preprint servers. And these preprints will generate a DOI link that can be shared or even cited by media or in a resume or something like that. And it's great because it's not behind a paywall. It's easy to disseminate. You get up-to-date information. It's not like, say, a scientific article has passed peer review and it's set to be published. But instead of getting EPUBed, it's embargoed for months or something before it's even maybe even put up online or even then published in the actual issuance of a journal article. It's a way of reducing the time that the latest data is available to people actively working on questions. It's great in that regard, but it's important to remember that the work hasn't been peer reviewed. And though BioArchive does allow for basically comments on articles that are posted so you can interact with it, someone could do their own civilian crowdsource type review of BioArchive works, at least in the fields and the papers that I've read on preprint servers, I don't see a lot of that. Sometimes you do see it on in other social media spaces like Twitter. Sometimes you see it to some extent in the media, if it's especially a hot topic that's interesting to a, or relevant to a general audience. A lot of the COVID-19 stuff was. And in fact, COVID-19 presented somewhat of a challenge to preprint servers because 
Again, there were concerns about people getting the wrong idea or misinformation or poor quality research being put up on these preprint servers about COVID-19 because it generated such interest and obviously was very, very important. So BioArchive had to, and MedArchive, which is related, had to update their basically quality filters that these preprint servers have, of course. So that's to some extent an ongoing concern, but I think generally it's really great that we have essentially these preprint servers available because it does forward the missions of open science, which is kind of the idea that because a lot of scientific research, a lot of basic research, translational research is funded by US tax dollars or tax dollars from whichever country, and they want that research to be available to people who had funded this research, essentially, and to science in general, so that science can progress. There's no reason necessarily to hide these things. So this is a way to get that information out there and to make sure that it's it's all out there. And agree in a, a large extent with all of this that, quote, sunlight is a great disinfectant. Get the information out there and we'll tease out the good from the bad and the right from the wrong and the important from the trivial. It's great to see preprints the adoption of them is growing. Early on, I can't remember exactly which fields per se were heavier users. There's definitely some field biases on which ones prefer. I think, for instance, physics has had preprint servers for a long time or preprint options. It's been a while. I remember one of my friends who's in astrophysics now, we were talking about preprints and he was like, man, you med people are coming on late. Like we've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, I think they had preprint options for physics and math, I think to some extent, but before there was an internet, maybe. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. not sure if that's correct, but a, a long while. It's just a mode of communication that's evolving and it's gaining more adoption. I think in genetics and neuroscience, it's pretty popular. And unfortunately though, a lot of the stuff that goes up on preprint servers, at least an analysis that I've seen previously of this work, a lot of times it kind of ends up in middle tier or low tier impact factor journals, not necessarily the stuff that ends up in science, cell or nature. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's still, there's, it's still going to very respectable journals and it's still important work that gets put up there. But it seems like sometimes, I guess, the stuff that's considered really high impact by some investigators, they still, it seems to some extent, they're keeping it quiet for the big reveal and, and the big journals. Do you think that's the reason why they aren't going to preprint? Can you talk about some of the potential negatives of preprint or things that people are generally worried about, but might not even be real? Yeah, I think there's always a concern of scooping, although less so now because people can always just point to their own <laughs> their own preprint DOI and say, you know, like we had already had this out there. But there's still like these debates about priority and ownership of ideas that still go on in really hot areas of research. You guys are probably familiar with the debate around CRISPR and about who should have the patent rights. I think that was recently resolved. And there's a whole book written about essentially that question. It was called The Code Breakers by Walter Isaacson mm -hmm. and covers these things can be really contentious. In some ways, the preprint kind of cuts both ways against it. I mean, it puts your ideas out before they're actually in a journal. So maybe a journal won't publish it. There's no guarantee a journal mm -hmm. will publish it. But in some ways, if someone takes your idea and does get it published, you can be like, well, we already actually did this work and look, and maybe we did it better too. The other downside too is maybe you put out your ideas before you've really honed them and maybe that does create a misleading impression or maybe there are inaccuracies that float around out there, which then leads to the wasted time and effort if people are following ideas that are based on false findings or incorrect findings or things like that. So that's a potential drawback too, but the peer review process isn't perfect either mm -hmm. and peer review can still happen in real time as well on the preprint servers too. I don't really see any huge glaring drawbacks to necessarily using the preprint model. 
other than the fact it might cut too much against the actual economic incentives and the business program of the actual journals themselves, because people may just choose the preprint over actually if they can't access the journal article that's paywalled, but maybe there needs to be a reckoning for scientific publishing generally anyways. I, I've heard that debate before, basically, like, why would I pay like $11,000 to publish my paper when I could put it on preprint servers and then just get vocal review from public or people can make their own decisions? That whole narrative is going to depend on what direction science goes. Yes. And if open science continues. But that's like, a again, a topic for another day. And one thing, in some respects, there's some investigators that do intend BioArchive or a preprint server to be the final resting place the final product for a paper. A lot of times though, those are more like consortium update stuff or resource-based stuff. I think an example of that would be, there was some program that was a pathogenicity predictor. It may be CAD, C-A-D-D. I think the final resting place for that paper, maybe wrong here, was BioArchive. So Hmm. people may increasingly make that choice. One thing I am wondering about, just because I'm not exactly sure how this works today, Mm -hmm. if a paper is on BioArchive, but it never actually makes it into a journal, is it still referenced readily in other papers? Do people shy away from referencing it or citing it in their publications? How does that work? That's a good question. I've only on rare instance actually found a BioArchive preprint paper cited in an actual research publication. Mm -hmm. So... I think for some journals, it has to be peer-reviewed in order to cite. Uh, I think that's mm-hmm. true for a lot of journals. So in some respects, if a paper is only on BioArchive, it may be difficult to cite if you're trying to publish in a particular journal. That can't be entirely true. But Once before, I've seen something where it said unpublished data referenced at this BioArchive link or something like that. Yes. Because you can say this finding is supported by unpublished data in a paper, and that's fine. But they said unpublished, uh, but in bioarchive. Or like unpublished Thacker at all, and then they link the bioarchive. I see. Yes. Yeah. You may have to kind of cite it in a special way in a paper if you're using, say, open source web programs or tools. A lot of times sort of cite the URL. So mm-hmm. you might be able to cite it that way instead of within like a bibliography format. It's clear that it's not a publication. Yeah. That's all. I see. Yeah. So you can't exactly cite it the same way because it's not considered a publication. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Because I was thinking about it. It's like, what if it spurs a thought? You sort of take your research somewhere, but you know it came from a paper that wasn't originally published. Yes. Just kind of a thought. Exactly. And I mean, I think scientific publishing is going to evolve and find better ways or at least more intentional ways of incorporating this. I mean, I think the paper model, the article model of delivering science may change altogether. Then maybe something like we're opening up our notebooks and like people can watch in real time the science going on and they can actively participate in the science by doing peer review. Maybe this is too idealized. Maybe it'll never happen. Maybe it'll never be this open or, you know, this collaborative, but it's a model that I could foresee as a possibility. It'd be a nice world. It would be really interesting. There would be a lot more ideas to sift through, I think, which could make it kind of overwhelming, but it would be very interesting. Yeah. And in some ways, I would actually predict that a lot of things would coalesce because things would coalesce around questions that are interesting and there would be less concern about being scooped. I think some of the academic incentives we have now is to be very unique and find a very special niche. And it leads to a lot of esoterica. And that isn't necessarily moving science and technology to a place that's actually improving the quality of human life. And some people don't necessarily think that all research needs to have a practical endpoint. And sometimes we just can do research to find the truth about nature and so on. And we can study every little question we want. But you know, if it's something that's a taxpayer-funded effort, 
typically there has to be some yield in some way, shape or form. And I think if it was this completely open and collaborative project and there wasn't these overwhelming concerns about professional incentives and accumulation of prestige and, and so on, there would likely, I think, be some concentration on particular questions of import. And I think that would be a good thing for science in some regards, because we would know what the important questions are to ask. It may basically kind of crowdsource science into very fruitful directions. Stetson, what are your thoughts on ResearchGate? ResearchGate is an excellent tool for sharing your research that's already been published or active projects that you're working on, as well as connecting with both your lab members and other scientists, colleagues in your field, or even other fields if you like. It's sort of got the flavor of a social media app. It's, I guess, kind of like a LinkedIn slash Facebooky thing for scientists. Yo, what's your H index? How many friends do you have on Facebook? <laughs> kind of like that. Actually, ResearchGate does generate its own semi like H index score, which mm -hmm. is not necessarily based on the same things that H index are at all. More based on kind of your engagement on ResearchGate itself. It's like a self-serving bias. It's so funny. It's like, what is that number even worth? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a gamification uh, effort to try to get you to use ResearchGate more. Some of the things that I see ResearchGate used for the most is basically for scientists to request the work of other scientists to get full text of papers without having to pay for an article. It's kind of like a sort of a backdoor way, a back channel way around some paywalls, which of course researchers are allowed to share their research. It's very collaborative in that regard. You can also save and recommend work. It's also, if you're part of a big lab and you're not necessarily having you know regular meetings or stuff, connecting with your own lab on ResearchGate and seeing what they're <laughs> posting their own their own research can be good too because you stay up to date on, on what their work is. Not that that's the only way to follow their work either, but <laughs> it can be a low investment way, low effort way of following their work. Awesome. Thanks for all of these explanations of these different sources of communication. We wanted to move in to ask you some more like personal opinionated questions now. So feel free to say what you'd like. I'm very opinionated. Sure. <laughs> but what do you believe is the most important form of scientific communication outside of publications right now? Like if you had to pick one, I know that's hard, but the most important. You touched on books, but I don't know if that's your final answer. I don't know. It depends again on exactly what you mean, like staying up with the latest or moving a field forward or suggesting new ideas. There's just so much great stuff. There's a lot of great science journalism out there, both within sort of old traditional journalistic entities, as well as on new models like Substack. And I think you know, it's fairly easy to get connected to those people if you follow the right people on Twitter. Some of it, again, is based on one's own individual tastes, but there are really a lot of great science writers out there. I mentioned some sub stackers earlier, but there's people working within traditional media like, you know, Carl Zimmer, who's a scientific writer at New York Times, I believe, and he tends to write about genetics. And he did a, a nice sort of obit piece for E.O. Wilson, who uh, died recently, who was a giant in entomology and sociobiology, which is a field he, in, he incepted. All right. To kind of move then from there, we already talked about open science a little bit. Mm -hmm. How are there any other ways that you predict or you see scientific communication changing within the next few years or decades? Yes. Yeah. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. I do think the open science movement may 
be a preview to a time when we move away from the article-based paradigm of scientific research and venture into sort of an open lab notebook approach or sort of a ongoing project publication type deal where a lot of times the impression that a published scientific article can give, this is you know, a definitive complete project when in reality, it's oftentimes a little section of a much larger work and that formatting the medium can give a misleading impression, I think, or an overly finished impression about the state of a science of times, especially to the lay public when the media is trying to report on particular research. It's not well contextualized when it's delivered to them in an article format. Now it's pretty much always delivered communicating, say, with a journalist or something. I always thought that, to interject, I always thought that was an odd dichotomy of how on the inside scientists say, oh, we're always continuing, always building, the project never stops, there's never an end. But then we put out these things that are gospel every year in these big journals and say, I've solved it. Yeah, like I solved this problem. Yeah. Um, Now I'm done. And then anybody who's tangentially outside of the real question goes, oh, okay, so that's done now. But in reality, that's not really the way it works. So I always thought that the model itself was a little bit strange. I don't know if you feel that way too. Yeah, I think I generally agree. I also don't think the model is especially great for essentially like science dialogues. No, yeah. I think we've had a lot less, you know, a lot less debate in the scientific literature. I think there's a little bit of a pressure to not be the uncool one and like attack someone's work or a little bit of a pressure to be like, firebrand and be always attacking or something. And there's a less, I think, collegial debate and exchange of ideas and focus really along the same track. People, I think there's some incentive for them to kind of stay in their lanes or carve out their own lanes and and not cross in anyone else's. And I think that there's a bit of a siloing, even though there's all this work being generated, and even though it's open and everything, and there isn't this coalescing. So it's a little too fragmented. And I think getting away from the article format and just doing debates and letter to the editors may be a little bit of a way of getting away from that. And even like scientific conferences and posters, it's not necessarily always the best for, I guess, continuing and regular and rigorous exchange of ideas around a regular topic, even of people with different perspectives or data that's saying slightly different or entirely different things. I've always loved the idea of moving to a hub of science. I don't know, like Cleveland's not that big of a hub, but like Boston, New York, Chicago, and somehow finding the money to open a coffee house. That's like the classic English coffee houses that are talked about in history where all these big name people would come in and debate each other over an espresso or something at 10 in the morning. And you'd hear these awesome chats that anyone could walk into. I think we need more of that. It's a lovely idea. Agreed. Yeah, it sounds like the sort of thing that you get at conferences, but you can get it all the time if you just show up at a place. Yeah. But then also COVID destroyed conferences. So Exactly. That's a big problem that we have now. I think that it's pushing everything more back into the lab. Yeah. Not great, but hopefully in the near future, we'll see an end to that. So. Yeah. And with conferences, a lot of them, there's a difference between, say, a, like a large conference and a small conference. Some like extremely large conferences. It's just they're not particularly conducive to these discussions. This is so big. There's hundreds of people in an audience for a given talk. And sometimes talks are like 15 minutes or the keynote, maybe an hour. But then there's thousands of people in the room. They walk up to the mic, you get one question, things like that. So... To end on a good note, though, there's a lot of great work to do, and I think we're going in the right direction with opening up communication and allowing for more voices to be heard, which is really important. Mm -hmm. Yes, lots of progress to be had. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time today, Stetson. We enjoyed having you. Thanks for having me. It was great talking with you guys. 
So Anne, are you ready to download Twitter? I think so. This conversation actually pushed me in that direction. I never thought I would be interested in social media like Twitter before, but now I am for good reason. I think in regards to what really stood out to me was the importance of being a critical thinker. This is true for anything you read. Obviously, we have a lot of information thrown at us today. But I know that when I look at a journal that's really prestigious and I see papers that come out of there, I think to myself, oh, it's good. It's perfect. I don't need to think too much about whether or not the science is done well. But you really need to always have your critical thinking cap on, especially since we're moving more towards preprint, as Stetson discussed. So just a thought, not only for reading scientific papers, but whatever you read, think critically about it. I like that takeaway a lot, especially given everything going on with preprint right now, as you mentioned. Talking with Stetson really re-energized my reflection on how science should be discussed in the public eye, especially during the growth spurt of open science. I think that currently, a lot of the top research is not only still paywalled, but it's written in a way that the general public just isn't trained to engage with. And I mean, we even have to undergo like years of training to really engage with it properly. So given that most people only really see scientific studies through mainstream news, maybe while they're eating dinner and there's some weird or esoteric association study being talked about, we as researchers really need to continue working on creating mediums in which we talk about breakthroughs or ideas in more of a fun and manageable way. Because I think, again, it's our job to make sure that the public understands what's going on and that the public can get as excited about science as we do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Behind Science podcast. We look forward to catching you next time.